right, man. Welcome to the intro for Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast episode. Uh, where are we? We're at 52. Um, I have with me today James Alfred and Jason Lindgren. We're going to talk about the formation of JPL, or basically the modern foundations of modern rocketry. And as many know, JPL basically became a part of NASA and is responsible for things like suppose machines that go to space, like the Mars rovers, I suppose uh, China's JPL would be responsible for their claim that they have a rover on the moon right now. But let's talk a little bit about the sky and how we get up there. In 1120 of the common era, a man, well, this is attributed to a man called Omar Khayyam, and it is attributed to the date 1120 in the common era. And it goes as follows. This is an excerpt from the Rubiot of Omar Khayyam. And the inverted bowl they call the sky, where under, crawling cooped, we live and die. Lift not your hands to it for help, for it as impotently moves as you or I. You may notice that in the first line he refers to the sky as an inverted bowl. I've mentioned it on this channel before that I actually finally saw the Milky Way, what is called the Milky Way, arching over my head and for the first time saw what is referred to in a seemingly old writings as the vault, the arch, or the dome of the sky. So how do we get up there? How do we get up to the arch, the vault, the dome of the sky? Well, we do it with rockets, we're told, right? That's how we're told it goes. So these are serious endeavors. Can we all agree that it's a serious endeavor to take human beings from the face of this world and to go up into the vault of the heavens. Definitely, I think we can agree that this is a serious endeavor. So what we're going to do in this episode is look at the serious men who laid the foundations for this serious endeavor by creating things like the earliest rockets and forming JPL, having to do with Caltech, the university system in uh, Pasadena, California, having to do with the Army, having to do with the U.S. Air Force. We're going to examine these men and the founding of JPL. And there's another man that's on the outskirts of modern rocketry. Um, many have heard of him. He worked with Walt Disney. Prior to that, we're told he was a Nazi. His name was Werner von Braun, and we cover this in the episode as well. If you go onto Google and do an image search for Werner von Braun's headstone, his gravestone, you will find that his name is on the gravestone, his birth year, his death year, and a single biblical passage, well, the the number value for Psalm 19.1. Ones and nines, eh, Werner, is what you left us. If you go look up Psalm 19.1, those ones and nines, you will find that it is referencing directly the handiwork of God and the firmament. You might need to use one or two versions. King James will get you there. Uh, I think the NIV may get you there. There's some other translations that for some reason, leave out anything about the firmament and just talk about the handiwork of God. But here is also a man who we're told was instrumental in providing single-handedly the designs for the rockets that are still in use today, and we are told they have changed very little from the day that Werner von Braun designed these amazing machines to take us to the amazing vaulted sky and onward into what is called space. So why? I would ask, did Werner von Braun leave us these ones and nines, Psalm 19.1, to inform us that the handiwork of God was in fact the firmament? Do rockets go through the firmament? 
Does the firmament stock a rocket? All these questions, we'll just have to get into the episode. But as we do, I will preface, I am very suspicious of history. The quote attributed to Napoleon Bonaparte that history is a lie agreed upon, I think are probably some of the truest words ever spoken, regardless of whether they're attributed to the correct man or not. The further back in history we go, the more suspicious I become of the history I am reading. For after all, seemingly history is a lie agreed upon. And we all know that the victors write the history, so that would only be 50% of an accurate history in the first place if we were to take it at face value. As we get into this, we're going to do a timeline of the supposed people who formed JPL. Um, a lot of it seems like a construct to me. I'll lay my cards on the table. But nonetheless, these are the histories and timelines that have been provided to the public. So let's take a careful look at these serious men who founded JPL to go on serious endeavors and take human beings and machines and payloads from the face of the earth up into the vaulted heavens and further on into space, we are told, on this serious endeavor. Let's take a look at these serious men. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 52. And as promised, I have Jason Lindgren with me and James Alfred is back. We're going to be talking about the strange affair that is JPL or the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Um you know, I've said it a lot of times, if science and space endeavors are serious endeavors, then should they cross over into things like entertainment, comic books, science fiction, and occult figures that were supposedly creating moonchilds and Lord knows what? Do these two things belong in the same bowl? Uh, in my view, they do not. And I'm going to preface this episode um, where we are going to run down the history that has been given us from some of the main personages, figures, and founders uh, around the founding of JPL. But I'm going to also, once again, use the tired old quote that, in my view, history is a lie agreed upon. The reason I'm bringing this up is because when we go through these things and I began to take them apart and, you know, we'll point it out as we go through, uh, I find problems, even even with the idea of whether Aleister Crowley was, in fact, a real person. We know his ideas, the ideas attributed to him are real. But the more I looked into Crowley, the more suspicious I became of the whole construct of Crowley. And I know a lot of people have a problem with that. That's fine. Everyone can have their own point of view. But what I'm pointing out here is I do not accept that rockets go to what we call space. I do not accept the orbital model that has been handed us from places like JPL and NASA, while they're one and the same at this point. Um, if anything, any of the work I have done or any of the things I have just mentioned are true or partially true, what we are looking at here is basically an elite run at funding by Carnegie's, Rockefellers, and unders, others at pulling the wool over the eyes of the world. So what I'm saying here is if, in fact, rockets are not going to space, and if, in fact, I am correct that the orbital model is nonsense, we are looking at the story that obscures the truth being drawn from basically the beginnings of JPL. Anyhow, I won't strangle that puppy much longer, and I'll uh, I'll get Jason in here. Welcome, Jason. Hey, what's up, man? Hey, man. Well, welcome, James. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me back. This is a huge topic. It's going to go over quite a bit of stuff. Yeah, I mean, as I was going through the 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 list we've got together here, it is a lot to deal with. So um, 
hope you guys are both ready. And Jason, uh, good luck on wrangling this list because it goes every which way, man. So I'll just I'll kick it straight to you. Go for it, Jason. All right. So NASA and JPL, they're all intertwined. JPL, though, came out of Caltech originally. And Caltech, uh, one of the primary people behind that is a guy named George Ellery Hale. Now, he was called uh, apparently by people doing descriptions of his life, the high priest of the sun or the Zoroaster of their time. And why they would reference the sun is because he did an awful lot of solar work, um, big time into solar surface studies and um, set up multiple observatories out in California. And uh, James, you had a whole lot of stuff here, uh, just all about that, if you want to go into that first before we get into Jack Parsons and JPL. Yeah, sure. It's a it's a curious beginning. Um, <clears throat> immediately, you begin to see some of this mystical element that's attached to JPL with Dr. George Ellery Hale. Some uh, brief background on the individual. Hale was born in Chicago, Illinois, on June 29th of 1868. Um, he seemed to have a very fortunate upbringing. His father was named William Ellery Hale, and he made quite a bit of a fortune installing elevators in the uh, Chicago era post the Great Fire of Chicago of 1871. Uh, important to note at this point in time, too, Hale was a huge fan of Jules Verne. It's a name that we'll see repeated over, over, and over, and over again as we go through this list. Hale graduated from MIT, <clears throat> and he received further education at the Harvard College Observ Observatory, as well as the Humboldt University of Berlin. It's in eight, August of 1889 that he developed, or he at least came up with the idea of the spectroheliograph, and this came to him as biographers call it, out of the blue. The spectroheliograph allows for the photography of solar prominences in full daylight and provides for a permanent record of other solar phenomena. It's curious at this point in time, you've got this idea of out the blue. And as we move forward through this individual's biography, you get an early glimpse of what some might consider to be an elemental or a familiar uh, that gave him advice throughout different periods of his time. So this, again, is a common theme that we'll see pop up over and over and over again during the uh, idea of JPL. So as uh, Jason had previously mentioned, it was a New York Times article at the beginning of the 20th century that referred to Hale as the high priest of the sun, the Zoroaster of our time. Um, of course, Zoroaster was an ancient Persian prophet. Um, a lot of people attribute the idea of monotheism to Zoroaster, uh, the cosmology of the individual typically has ties to the solar deity Mithras, or the god of light. Uh, curiously, Mithras in Greek alphabet, and I did a little bit of numerology on this, that equates to the idea of 365. So again, we're setting up a, a cycle of time that most of us are very familiar with in respect to solar observation and the uh, current cosmological model that uh, 20th, 21st century science is pushing. Uh, looking into the symbol of Mithra, I found an old article in a Freemason magazine, or I should say an encyclopedia. It mentions that as a ritual, the symbol of Mithra is that of a young man who presses his knee upon a bull, grabs the bull's horn with his left hand, and with his right hand plunges a dagger into his neck. A nearby dog stands nearby and laps up the dripping blood that comes forth from his neck. Again, we have some idea of the solar symbology in this point in time. You have the idea of the dagger as being the ray of the sun. The sun's rays pierces the bosom of the earth and therefore nourishes it, as seen by the idea of the dog lapping up the blood. Uh, Mithras, also in some speculation, is possibly the Christ archetype. It's the idea of the sun's death, resurrection, rebirth, 
over the course of some 365 cycle period of time. Uh, again, you have this media construct that is imparting a mystical sensibility to Dr. Hill. Uh, any comments? I was curious if you, either of you had any ideas on this idea of Mithra, solar worship, and so forth. Yeah, well, there's there's just so much going on in, in what you just said. And, and again, you know, is science like the serious scientific endeavor? I mean, we crossed the threshold five times while you were talking. Um, we've gone to high priestess of the sun. We've gone back to Zoroaster um, and Zoroastrianism, which at one point, I guess, was a major religion um, from what I've read about it in the past. I understand there's interesting ideas there about understanding the truth, the difference between truth and lies. And then the whole idea of free will is wrapped up in that as well. But there's no getting away from it. You know, George Ellery Hale was apparently or is cited as having been instrumental in designing so many of the big telescopes of his day. Um, I've, I've even been up to the Palomar Observatory um, and seen the scope there. I think that was actually, I don't, I'm drawing this off the top of my head. At one time, I think the Palomar Observatory might have had one of the biggest scopes going, um, but I don't remember for sure. Um, when we start to look at supposed men of science, and then they're being referred to as high priests of the sun, um, we're seeing a crossover in language and words have meaning, and there's no getting away from it. And when I started to read through the bullet points you wanted to cover, James, it immediately struck me um, that the financing was coming from the same old players, the Carnegies and the Rockefellers. So, you know, I won't go too much further down this road. Um, Jason, do you have anything? Well, the whole Zoroaster thing, that's yet another Messiah figure that... Um it it all came about thousands of years before uh, any any of the more modern christianity or any of that and that and plus all the other stuff you're talking about with the bull and everything that seems directly related into astrotheology again with the changing of the eons so right. you know this it, it's these same concepts being recycled uh, throughout all these different stories you know well, it's it's not only that. So often in the supposed ancient Egyptian, which I think is highly questionable how old anything in Egypt is, um, for that matter, uh, Zoroastrianism. How old is that stuff? I'm I'm getting ready to do an episode where we talk about um, the idea that maybe Rome was founded around the 1100s. Um, there is a movement afoot to show that there could be at least a millennial difference. Um, a thousand year difference, actually, between the timeline we've been handed. Uh, but to get back on point here, so often in the Egyptian stuff, we see the symbolism of the bull. And um, we've talked about it a, a number of times here where the sacrificing of the bull um, meant to symbolize the the end of an age, if there was such a thing. Uh, there's there's just no getting away from it. What, what place, I would ask, in a serious endeavor called science where these men are making telescopes to discover the amazing things they can discover about space, what place does any of the Zoroastrian, the age of the bull, the sacrificing of bulls, high priest of the sun, what place does it have in any of it? And to me, that begins to show the construct. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Uh, yeah, moving on even to his life, uh, as Crow had mentioned, he was responsible for and some of the oversight of some of the larger observatories at the turn of the century. Uh, for example, in 1892, he helped oversee the University of Chicago's Yerkes Telescope. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. That's uh, nearby me in Williams Bay, Wisconsin. This telescope ended up being a 40-inch scope. Uh, in 1904, he received uh, the gold medal of the Royal Astronomical Society for his work regarding the photography of the surface of the sun. Curious that he received this at a very early point in his age, and again, it's in relationship to his work regarding the surface of the sun. It's at that point in time he moved out to Pasadena, which starts this whole 
tail of JPL, Caltech, and et cetera. Um, he was on a summit of Pasadena's Mount Wilson. And at some point in time, while he was on this hike up to the top of the mountain, he had another possible mystical experience. Again, this could very well be attributed to an idea of an elemental or some sort of a hallucination that he experienced while he was on top of this mountain. This led to the construction of the Carnegie-funded Mount Wilson 60-inch telescope and the construction of the curiously named monastery in 1908. Uh, interesting that the monastery in Mount Wilson I looked a little bit for imagery of this online, and I couldn't find a whole lot. I might have not been looking in the correct places, but it was said to include, again, Egyptian symbols, Egyptian symbols regarding the sun, so forth, and it had an initiate-type privilege to use the scope. The monastery was dedicated under the pretense of pseudo-Masonic rituals, i.e. candles being held, fires being lit, etc. And, of course, with all of this in mind, no women were permitted entry. So you have this observatory dedicated to male high-minded science and uh, the initiate. Again, the uh, the profane are not allowed access. Yeah, that Later, sounds very at, Freemasonic. Exactly, exactly. Um, later, a 100-inch scope was added at the same observatory, courtesy of an L.A. millionaire amateur astronomer by the name of John Hooker. Uh, so at that point in time, we've solidified the idea of Mount Wilson, a mystical experience, and now we have these eyes that are gazed upon the uh, the cosmos. Well, you, you, you said so much. I mean, one of the things that you pick out as an early age is being honored by the, the Royal Astronomical Society. Um, and that tells a tale, doesn't it? We know what the royal families have been up to. We know how they feel about the rest of us, you know, the masses. And we understand what they do with information. Um, they keep the good stuff and they push nonsense out at the rest of us. But Earlier when you were speaking, I forgot to mention, you were talking about looking at the sun in certain spectrums. And I wanted to point this out because when I got interested and I wanted to start looking at the sun, the main tool that's available to most astronomers, um, and it's not even really that affordable, the really small ones are even a little bit pricey, is a hydrogen alpha solar scope. And what's interesting here is if you go to Soho or any of these other places that are imaging the sun, they're doing it through all these different filters, all these different spectrums. But mostly the amateur astronomer <clears throat> that you will see is using hydrogen alpha. And I would ask, um, is, hi is hydrogen alpha the least <laughs> helpful way to look at the sun? And I suspect it probably is. I suspect that if we had the ability to look at the sun as these guys were, we'd be knowing a, a lot more. Um, and yet I just wanted to point out the construct of how modern astronomy for amateurs has been built up where most people that are going to be looking at the sun, and I mean the vast majority, are going to be using a hydrogen alpha telescope looking at certain light waves that way, or a simple filter which knocks down 99% of the light so they can just look at it straight on and not see much. But anyhow, I wandered a bit. Go ahead. Okay. Well, the next step then is ultimately the beginnings, the uh, genesis of JPL. Uh, Hale had an idea. Um, he believed that astronomy was akin to the studies of theology and philosophy. That was his guiding principle. And what he wanted to do was create a school in the tra tradition of the ancient astronomical schools of the Mesopotamians, the Egyptians, and the Greeks. So with that in mind, Hale wanted to more or less merge his observatories on Mount Wilson with a nationally ranked school of science and technology. Enter Pasadena's through Polytechnical Institute. This was a college that was founded, I believe, at the end of the 19th century in Pasadena, very small school, not a whole lot of uh, focus 
with the assistance of Throops trustee Arthur Fleming, a Canadian-born lumber tycoon, Hale oversaw Throops' transition into the West Coast version of MIT. With the addition of Arthur Noyes, a pre a uh, preeminent U.S. chemist from MIT, and Robert Milliken, a renowned cosmic ray researcher, and even later the great Albert Einstein, the glory of Caltech was born, and in 1920 the school's name was changed to the California Institute of Technology. So now we've got Caltech in place. Again, we've got a sense of myst mysticism, solar worship, uh, ancient pagan religions, etc., and now we have Caltech that's in place. Uh, another thing I really wanted to point out before we moved on after Hale was this idea of him being a um, stellar evolutionist. So he's basically aligning himself with Darwin and Darwinism. And again, this more or less goes back to the uh, conversation we had regarding panspermia. A curious quote that he had in 1908, he had published the study of stellar evolution. In it, he wrote that the spiral nebula which initiates to his monastery were given access to view. Again, the uh, the public wasn't privy to see these patterns in the night sky. It was proof of the universe's origin. The spiral was the founding pattern of the creator, and these vast star spirals suggested cosmic shapings and condensations over the eons, a dance to the music of time, orderly and progressive, through which the elements of the universe were continuing to arrange themselves into galaxies. So this is, a again, the origin of Caltech, and you have a very... Uh, theological, very um, mystical aspect that's being presented at Caltech um, at this point in time. So, I mean, it's almost like say as I do, or say as I do as I say, not as I do, right? In in science, there is no crossover into these voodoo-y, hocusy-pocusy magic areas or these mystical areas that all these guys are claiming to have based their you know, their foundational systems in. But to be clear, you were just talking about the spirals they saw in the sky. I have a telescope. You can see them. Um, they're not easy to see with naked eye observing. If you take a camera and you open the shutter, you get a much better view if you're under perfect conditions. But you see, they were called spiral nebula at the time. What they actually are called today is galaxies. So everything you were just talking about is the idea that we are in one galaxy and there's all these other galaxies that we can see. And again, you know, I've used telescopes for a long time. Most of these things, when you look naked eye at them, they don't look that spirally. They do look like a little gray, fuzzy area, better maybe described as a nebula. But again, when you put a camera on them and you collect the light over time, that's when you start to resolve that there is a spiral pattern there. But, I mean, there's no getting away from, um, do we expect our scientists to be high priests of the sun, to be into all this hoodoo voodoo, moon child, you know, um, unknowable nonsense from days gone by? It's, it's a conflict of ideas. And I would suggest even his interest in Darwinism is simply there to lead everybody down the wrong road. Sure, sure. And, uh, you know, you had mentioned earlier, you've got the Carnegies that were initially involved with this, this meme that's being constructed out in Pasadena. Uh, the next step is John D. Rockefeller. Um, official biographies make mention that Hale wrote an article in a 1928 Harper's Magazine issue regarding the structure of the universe, the evolution of the stars, and the con constitution of matter. And at that point in time, the Rockefeller Institute became interested in the work of Hale. And... This, as you had mentioned previously, too, uh, led to the construction of the Palomar Observatory near San Diego, a place that you're probably very familiar with. Uh, curiously, the observatory is located on the 33-degree parallel and contains a 200-inch scope. Um, any thoughts on Palomar at this point in time? 
Yeah, I, I mean, so many things you just said there. First off, if you were doing serious scientific endeavors, do you publish your findings in Harper's Magazine? Is that where scientific discoveries are published? Um, I would suggest not. I would suggest that that's done through universities and papers and other publications that are meant to handle scientific discoveries. But here we're saying he published in Harper's Bazaar, and lo and behold, the Rockefellers came to open their deep pockets and fund his amazing work. Um, and yes, to answer your question, I'm, I have been to the Palomar Observatory. Um, it's quite a thing to see. You know, you get in there and it's a big dome and, and the scope is really, really long and big. I've forgotten the size of it by now. It's been years since I've been there. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I always think I, I've also been to uh, Flagstaff where the scope, I think it's a 27-inch scope, if I remember correctly there, that supposedly discovered Pluto. Um, and all I can ever think of when I see the scopes of that size is what if regular people had access to these things on a regular basis and they could look and they could discover what a different picture we probably would have anyhow. Mm. Yeah, never been there, but I would like to see it. Do you remember if there was any like weird symbolism or... Uh, statues or anything kind of occultish that the observatory similar to what was at Mount Wilson? Um, actually, the way I remember it, and it's been probably over 10 years since I've been there now, is uh, the trees were all kind of dying out at that time. Um, but it's very sparse. And even inside the observatory, it's very stripped down um, feel to it. Just not much there at all, almost like it's barely used. And I know it is still in use, um, but it just the whole the grounds and everything felt very kind of stripped down to me. Not much there. OK. OK. Well, finally, with him, he's uh, just an element to the story that we see again and again. He apparently had an elf that would visit him throughout his time. He called it the Whirlingus. And this elf or this elemental would give hail advice concerning his life. Uh, a lot of people write these stories off as being hallucinations of a man inflicted with mental disease. But this is a common thread that we'll see again with the idea of the golem, the golem, I should say, and uh, the eventual moon child. Um, so that is Hale's uh, nutshell story uh, as quickly as I can get through. But again, I just wanted, I think this is important to the idea of JPL and this sensibility regarding sun worship and uh, esoteric mysticism. Now, it's interesting about Hale that, uh, and elves, on, I, I looked on Caltech's website and they immediately dismiss this whole elf thing and immediately go into, uh, you know, big spiel about how amazingly brilliant he was and all that. So uh, not just there, but other places also that I, when I was looking up Hale, mixed reviews on, on whether or not the, he really did have this, you know, elf experience thing. So sure. Who knows? Sure. You know? It almost smacks of social engineering. You know, one of the main tenets of social engineering is to never give people a completely full picture and then to introduce conflicting information and then do the opposite, almost like jerking people from normalcy to non-normalcy, you know, just keep doing that back and forth. And then at some point, the minds of the masses just kind of give up. And uh, that is a, a huge part of social engineering. But again, you know, we're, we're looking at George Ellery Hale supposedly designing all these telescopes all over the world and he's talking to elves really what what are we looking at here um for me it's it doesn't wash mm -hmm. and it's curious that the elf too is you know a lot of researchers have said that that's the equivalent of like a gray or some sort of an extraterrestrial and uh, we'll get into it a little bit later but again palomar this individual's associated with this mystical experience at both mount wilson palomar and we'll see that palomar becomes instrumental in 
more or less defining the archetype of the UFO of the 20th century and little gray men, little green men from Mars and so forth. So it's a curious connection at this not point. F- not far from the 33rd parallel. Well, in, in case of Palomar, it's like right there. I know for for certain because I've lived in San Diego. Um, exactly. The 33rd parallel comes through at a very rich part of San Diego and uh, Palomar's not too much further north of that. Um, so a- anytime you hear the UFO story and you're around the 33rd parallel, you, you better understand you're you're looking at an extension of Roswell, um, mm-hmm. that tired old Roswell story that will never be resolved and will constantly be rehashed to introduce these unknowable, nonsensical ideas into the public mindset. Um, you've got to have a foundation to take a path with any given topic. And unfortunately, the foundation for UFOs in, in this country is primarily Roswell um, or the airplane flight that happened sometime earlier where the guy was talking about flying saucers and skipping bowls or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. These are all constructs to affect social consciousness. There is no there there. Whether or not there are others out there, who knows? But the point I'm trying to make here is you can't base anything of value on on these stories anyhow. Yep. Okay. The next part would be the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory, uh, known as Galset and this was formed in 1926 with assistance uh, from funds from Daniel Guggenheim and his son, Harry. The Guggenheims and Hales, uh, at, their hires at Caltech, brought over a, a gentleman from Hungary known as Theodore von Karman. Now, this, this guy is interesting because he was a child prodigy who could multiply six-digit numbers by the age of six, which, of course, is uh, very interesting. They can... Bringing that, it's uh, a lot of sixes. Yeah, that's a lot yeah. of sixes. <laughs> yeah, you're also talking about the 16th century. You're looking at triple sixes encoded, but go ahead, Jason. Uh, he's supposed to be the ancestor of Rabbi Judah Lauvin Bezalel, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, a 16th century rabbi, mystic, and mathematician who is said to create a golem and possibly cross paths with famous Englishman John Dee. <laughs> okay, so... Before we start to tackle the golem and the construct, in my view, that is John D., um, we should point out there's a relationship to the name Carmen with what people will be familiar as the Carmen line. Um, the Carmen line has been used at times to try to define how far away space starts from sea level. It is suggested that the Carmen line is at 62 miles above our head or 100 kilometers, which would be the claim where what is called space starts. But as I began to dig into this um, some years ago, I began to instantly find problems. For one thing, if you go to look up where space starts, you get every number under the sun nearly. But if we were to accept that the Kármán line is a true thing and we accepted 62 miles, we recently saw the highest amateur rocket launch, which claimed 73. And it apparently hit something um, and stopped dead in its tracks at 73 miles, according to their altimeter, although the counter argument was that there was some yo-yo declination device which stopped the rocket. But again, um, a friend of ours that's been on this show, uh, Brian Mullen, who is an engineer, took apart the video watching things fall back and pointed out these things could not excuse me, could not be falling through air. Um, And he too came to the conclusion that it's likely that space is water. But to get a little further into the Kármán line, 62 miles broken down into feet is 330,000 feet, which is again 33 encoded, which is something to think about. But here's a real problem. When I was in the Marine Corps, we were told that we were bouncing radio signals off the ionosphere down to the ocean 
back up the ionosphere to get further around what we were told was a globe. And we did talk to people that were a long ways away with these radios. When I was looking at the Kármán line, I went back to look at the idea of the ionosphere. So people understand what the ionosphere supposedly is. It's charged particles. That's what is, we're told the ionosphere is. If you look up where the ionosphere begins, we're told it's roughly 30 to 40 or maybe it's 40 to 50 miles above because the low edge of it fluctuates. But here is the rub. We are further told that the ionosphere goes 1,200 miles up. So if we were to accept that space starts at the Kármán line at 62 miles, we're being further told that the ionosphere overlaps at up to 1,200 miles. We're told that space is a vacuum, and then we're further told that the ionosphere is charged particles. You begin to see the problem of all these constructs were handed. None of them can jive back to a solid foundation where they hold water. And Jason, I'm sorry for pulling you so far off, but when we put the name Carmen out there, I wanted to include the idea of the Carmen line. Now we can get into the golem and the elf and the fairies and all that. Yeah, well, what you see is, and, and this is definitely something that was true as far as we know from history, is that uh, mysticism and science for what it was they were intertwined, and a lot of these people, uh, John D. being supposed to be being one of them, saw them as multiple facets of the same thing. So that apparently carried into the Victorian times and then over into the 20th century. Um, make of that what you will, you know? Well, he, he hovered around the royal court, didn't he? He was into alchemy. He was into any number of these things to include alchemy. But anytime we get someone hovering at the royal court, we've got to begin to ask the questions. What are kings and queens for historically? Are they here to make sure that all the people are happy and that all the people have good information and all the people know as much as they could? Or are they here for something else? And in my view, I've said it enough times on this show, they're here for something else. Um, they're here to consolidate power, maintain power, and keep power within the same supposed lineages or bloodlines. And here we have John D. working for the royal court. So... Right there, I can't square anything that comes out of John D. as valuable, factual, or anything more than some constructed history that we're supposed to marvel at and find mystery in. But again, that is my point of view, so I'm almost certain James is going to have something on this. Uh, definitely. You know, you can see that as the key. So if you discount whatever D— well. For a background, for people who may not know, uh, John D. was enamored with the idea of Enoch— um, Enoch being the first man who walked with God after the fall. Apparently he was on this search. As the story goes, he was on a search to find these fabled lost books and these lost knowledge and so forth. And rather than attempting to track down these these books, what he would use were gazing crystals. And the idea was that he would speak with angels to learn of the dialogue between Enoch and God. So then in, I think it was March, get my notes, March 8, 1582, Dean Sir Edward Kelly which uh, D. Kelly is very close to L. Ron Hubbard and uh, Jack Parsons, as we'll see as we hit the 20th century, attempted to converse with these angels through the assistance of the crystal. Now you've got this idea of angels talking to these two through the usage of the oldest language known, the language of angels. Uh, these people are basically talking, given the tools to call on 30 ethers with 19 calls and as so happens one of these calls led to communion with a great harlot uh, Babylon so now you've got this basis of mystical knowledge that is potentially just a construct from the royal court in the 16th century this goes on to influence the works of uh, Crowley 
it goes on to work, influence the idea of Parsons and so forth. So you've got this genesis happening in the 16th century that rides throughout the uh, creation of JPL. So it's well, just well, a- I'm almost wondering, you know, because some of the things you're talking about, like the viewing crystals, that that almost speaks to the story we're handed from the Latter-day Saints, right? Um, I, I've forgotten the story exactly. Was it John Smith? I don't know. I hope I'm not butchering this because uh, I didn't Joseph think Smith, about it. Yeah. yeah, Joseph Smith. I didn't think about it before now, but supposedly having these, you know, magical things he views from to get this information and then they're lost. It's almost a similar construct. It is, yes. So anyhow, go go, go ahead, James. Uh, so anyways, you've got uh, this famous physicist engineer from Hungary, Theodore von Karman. He's running around Pasadena proclaiming that his great ancestor created this golem. A golem is this idea of infusing life with a wood or clay figure. This golem, in theory, could grow to any size, carrying a message, and obey the demands of its master through the use of the Hebrew alphabet and the Kabbalist formulations. Um, so this individual who, again, is this top-notch scientist, he's funded by the Guggenheim Institute, he's brought over by Hale, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's running around Pasadena talking about this golem that his great ancestor had created in Prague um, and this connection with John D. So another curious footnote to the beginning of JPL. Uh, it, it goes on and on. I mean, so can we walk into some rich dude today and say, hey, I believe in golems and fairies and elves and I talk to angels. Could you please fund me to go do this amazing scientific work? And even even when you were looking at the modern uh, reflections on some of these people like Hale, the scientific community is trying to distance itself from these things. But, you know, the cat's out of the bag. Um, we're looking what's available to the public here, and these things are written into the record for whatever they're worth, whether the record is complete nonsense, whether these people existed. We know the telescopes are here. We know the ideas that were put forward here. We assume that most of the modern personages probably existed, um, but there's no getting away from it, man. Really, the, these guys—they're—they're they're talking about making living beings out of mud um, and all these other kind of nonsensical things. It's—it's uh, it's all. I don't know. It's kind of an insult to the intelligence of anyone who would want to look at space as a serious endeavor and know something more about where we are. But that's just my point of view, Jason. Well, a couple things there. Um, couldn't telescopes also be considered an observing crystal? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, That's my first I, thought. Yeah, I suppose. Good point. Now, the whole concept of a golem, that almost strikes me as just an old world mentality of what we've got today going on with AI and all that, where they're trying to create, quote unquote, life out of nothing, something that is uh, capable of thinking for itself. So I would suggest that maybe Google is the golem. Well, we even have Gollum from Lord of the Rings, don't we? It's not far off this word. It must be reflecting this idea. Um, Clearly, the two towers were put into those books. So, uh, I mean, we can see the construct being used over and over. And as a matter of fact, I know certainly that there are also Hollywood movies. I believe they're in the black and white era um, that cover the Gollum. So this idea is pretty well defined, I would suggest. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and there's a lot of uh, speculation even where those concepts come from in the first place because the golem is out of the Kabbalah, but that's supposed to have come from a very dark source uh, according to mainstream history. So, again, make of that as you will. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. Well, next up we're going to get to the very enigmatic figure of Jack Parsons. He is um, a very interesting individual to look into. Lots of crazy stuff around this guy. Uh, he's he was 
known as Jack, but his birth name was Marvel Whiteside Parsons. His mother started calling him John, and then he kind of used the nickname Jack, which was very common, actually. People still do that today. Uh, he was born in Los Angeles, California, on October 2nd, 1914. Now, there are some biographies that allege that he was possibly a descendant of a Hellfire Club founder, which, uh, Crow, I know you know a bit more about that if you want to go into that one for a moment. Let's just address it really quickly. So here we're looking at Jack Parsons, founder of JPL, one of the main movers and shakers in the founding of JPL. Um, and his name is Marvel. Um, and it is supposed that possibly a thing called the Hellfire Club, a founder of that organization, which were basically elites um, who I believe designed their organization like the black and white back row of chessboards, if I'm not mistaken. They basically sought to influence world events. But the reason that I bring this up is because Parsons' name is Marvel. Marvel Comics has a Hellfire Club, which often fights, I think, with the X-Men, if I remember correctly. And again, um, the Hellfire Club in that Marvel comic construct is basically elite people seeking to affect world events. So here again, we have the founders of JPL uh, showing up in the funny pages and comic books. But anyhow, back to you, Jason. And Marvel also has an Illuminati just for a, another giggle. <laughs> There it is. <laughs> uh, his mother divorced his father shortly after his birth. It is said that his father was frequently seeing a prostitute, and uh, that just didn't fly. So they moved in with his mother's wealthy parents, and he grew up an isolated uh, young man with uh, very few childhood friends and no significant father figure. Now, it is said his interest in the occult world seems to have started early in childhood, where he claims to have summoned the devil to his bedroom at the age of 14 in a moment of loneliness. He, he uh, was later said to have said that the experience was both terrifying and fascinating. <laughs> well, the devil shows up in your bedroom at age 14. What do you need to build rockets and telescopes for? Why don't you just ask the devil what's going on? Right? I think that would be the first thing I'd do if I had that kind of experience. would be like, okay, I got some questions for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Next up, uh, in eighth grade, Jack befriends another boy named Edward Foreman. They both share a love of Jules Verne and other science fiction stories. Now, this is around the time of like the, uh, the comic strips and, and the pulp and all that stuff really starting to take off. So this leads them to start experimenting with fireworks in Parsons' back garden. In 1928, the pair began constructing their own solid-fueled rockets. It was commented on by neighbors how the backyard was full of scorch marks all the time. It was about this time that Parsons had begun experimenting with glue as a binding agent for the loose gunpowder in their rockets. So here we go again um, in the construct of this history of Jack Parsons or Marvel Parsons that we're reading. Straight in, we get associated with a sci-fi writer, but it's not just any sci-fi writer. It's Jules Verne. And I'm not 100% sure, although I think you guys agreed with me earlier, um, Jules Verne may be one of the earliest creditable people for what became the modern rocket. Um, and so many times we've covered on this show that these sci-fi writers were inventing so much, like satellites. From my view, they don't exist, and yet they were invented by a sci-fi writer. And here we have these guys fascinated with Jules Verne, who was probably one of the earliest people writing science fiction novels that first talked about rocketry. Anyhow, back to you, Jason. Yeah, it, the imagery was always rockets, too. It was like Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon, Jules Verne, H.G. Wells. It was always rockets. So that was just kind of the thing, you know? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I mean, look look at all the things you're citing from this history. These are fantasy television shows. These are comic books. These are science fiction novels. Um, So, I mean, these things have a meaning. I mean, we're not talking about the Encyclopedia Britannica or, you know, some prestigious scientific publication somewhere we're talking about fantasy it's what we're talking about yeah absolutely this is uh this is all sci-fi and these guys are all obsessed with it and want to bring into the reality so you can see how how these early uh stories were heavily influencing i mean the social engineering at its work you know Right. Yeah. I, I think there are probably people that would make the argument that they were inspired by these things. But I have been looking, and so have you, Jason, for long enough to just see how often the sci-fi writers are actually at the base of the things that shape our world. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And if you're keeping score at home, too, right now we're at we've got a royal magician. We've got angels. We're at a golem. We've got Jules Verne throwing an elf and now yep. a devil. So here we are. Yeah. <laughs> Here we are, man. This is where serious science to take you to space begins, guys. And we've barely even gotten started. (laughs) And we've barely even gotten started. It gets better. So as a young adult, Jack Parsons uh, found one of Aleister Crawley's books in a friend's library. Aleister Crawley goes on to become one of his favorite writers from that point on. And uh, also, this begins his twisted interest in all things Crawley, all the the weird, magical... We'll get to that. Crawley is just messed up. In his late teens and early 20s, Jack, along with Edward Foreman, worked several jobs that uh, involved explosives, uh, explosive factories and things like that. So this, of course, helped to add to their some knowledge of chemistry and how all these things go boom. It almost seems like you're seeing a backstory written to justify that they basically prance in to the position of JPL through Caltech's doors and even the Army at one point. For some reason, they just go wherever they want and people throw the doors open. But anyhow, keep going, Jason. Uh, also in the late 1920s, Parsons and Foreman begin a correspondence with Werner von Braun. So that's interesting. Uh, at that point, Werner von Braun would absolutely have been part of the Nazi party working on uh, what would become the V-2 rockets. And they they have some interesting correspondence back and forth with him apparently for quite some time. All right. So as so many people are familiar, we're told supposedly that Werner von Braun is basically the father of modern rocketry. As a matter of fact, there are people who will tell you that many of the rockets we use today have barely changed at all from the time this man single-handedly designed almost every facet of these rockets that supposedly take us to space. But here's an interesting point about Mr. Werner von Braun, who was also working for Walt Disney all the time, which tells you something. Um, Is Disneyland a serious endeavor? I don't know, but Werner Von Braun was there. Um, On Werner Von Braun's headstone, he has a birth date and a death date and his name, but he has one other thing. It's a Bible verse. It's Psalm 19.1, which not only codes 9-11, of course, but when you go to Psalm 19.1, and I've just chosen one of the many definitions, so many of the Christian folk out there have a problem when I choose the, the wrong version of the Bible. So what I'm doing here is using the one with the most common modern English that most people will probably understand. Here's what Psalm 19.1 talks about. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Now, if we go a little bit further, I'm going to grab a different version here. Give me just a second. I'll use the easy-to-read version. Uh, maybe I better grab an older version. Hold on. Let me let me grab the KJV. Because what, what it actually says in the older translations, it talks about the firmament as being the handiwork of God. 
So if I take the King James version, which is an older version than the modern, modern edit I just read you, they're basically talking about the firmament as the handiwork of God. And here's how it goes. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. So here is a man who is credited with modern rocketry that ended up taking us to suppose space. And on his headstone, he has a psalm verse, which encodes 9-11. I'm sure that's no coincidence, in my view, anyhow, talking about the firmament. And again, we have these ideas that don't jive. If there was a firmament, if there is a firmament, how in the heck does a rocket go blasting through it? You see, um, it's constantly these ideas that are at odds. But here, you know, I wanted to throw it in. There's Werner von Braum's Bible passage from his headstone. And for some reason, the man who shot rockets into space supposedly wanted to point out that God's handiwork was the firmament. So there it is. Back to you, Jason. The other th interesting thing about rockets that I, I would like to point out is that they are, they're very phallic-like objects. And we see that's a, a meme repeated in so much of the symbolism. Yes. I, I, I think you're spot on. I mean, it's the whole idea behind the obelisk, isn't it? And that's related to the sun. And we opened up with Mr. Hale being the high priest of the sun. So I don't think there's any getting away from, from that idea either. Right. So in 1937, Parsons and Foreman attend a lecture on rocketry at Caltech, where they become acquainted with a student there named Frank Molina. This student is a theorist and mathematician who is studying mechanical engineering. The three of them begin making inquiries around the campus in regards to establishing a rocket development program. They had the dream of going to the stars, but they were refused any opportunity since rocketry was the stuff of Buck Rogers, Amazing Stories, and Flash Gordon. In other words, just science fiction. <laughs> you, you want to take a poke at that, James? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, he's an interesting character, too, this Frank Molina, uh, as we'll get into some of the stuff that happened later on in his life. But you've got an individual, again, inspired by Jules Verne. He was a huge fan of the novel From the Earth to the Moon. Um, it's also worth noting at this point in time that Molina visited uh, disgraced rocket scientist Robert Goddard at Roswell, New Mexico, again, on the 33rd parallel and of uh, UFO infamy. Right, uh, but, but let's stop there for a second. So here again, we have Goddard, which is a big name in all space textbooks um, and in every Astronomy 101 class. And where is he? Well, of course, he's in 1936, which is triple six encoded, at Ros Roswell, New Mexico, the birth of modern ufology on the 33rd parallel. But anyhow, sorry, James, go ahead. No, no, exactly. It's a, you know, it's a really interesting how this stuff all ties together. Yeah. Uh, and so aside from being inspired by Jules Verne's work, the uh, official story is that he had written an article and published it in 1920 called A Method of Researching Extreme Altitudes. Immediately thereafter, newspapers across the country ran headlines such as New Rocket Devised by Professor Goddard May Hit Moon, May Hit Face of the Moon. Shortly thereafter, and this is where he is disgraced by both the public and the scientific communities. He went into isolation at Roswell, New Mexico. Again, a curious piece to all of this. It's another institute financed by the Daniel Guggenheim uh, Institute. So you've got two institutes at this point in time funding rocketry, both in Pasadena and at Roswell, New Mexico. Uh, one final quote with Goddard, von Karman, again, of uh, Golem, or I should say of mystical fame, said there's no direct line from Goddard to present-day rocketry. He is on a branch that died. So you, yeah, yeah, just you, curious, all this. It almost together. makes you wonder if Goddard um, wanted to say something truthful. That You know, every time I see one of these guys that was in the mix that gets defamed, um, I always wonder, because there were so many from the Royal Astronomical Society. As an example, there were people there who claimed they were getting ready to watch a 
occultation of Jupiter behind the moon. And so people understand what that means. Occultation basically means hidden. So what it would suggest is that the planet Jupiter is going to be hidden by the moon or go behind it. And they reported seeing that it never went out of view. It remained a black dot the whole time it was supposed to be behind uh, the moon, suggesting that the moon was transparent. And there were many accounts, and these guys were in Royal Astronomical Societies and other places, um, and they were discredited and defamed in much the same way we see Goddard. And while it's probably an impossible thing to know, whenever I see the defaming of a big name like this, I wonder if they said the wrong thing um, and actually tried to leak a little bit of reality out to us. Anyhow, yeah, did you have anything more, James, or should we kick over to Jason? Uh, yeah, Jason, go ahead. So Frank Molina also was inspired by the Jules Verne novel From Earth to the Moon, which, uh, you know, you see the, the, the huge... Um, mutual admiration society here that they, this is all what they want to do, launch rockets to the moon. So, their ambitions finally get their chance in the form of aerodynamicist Theodore von Kamen, which we, who, whom we mentioned earlier, uh, he, because he was working at the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratories of the California Institute of Technology. He listens to their plans for high-altitude rockets and approves their ideas in the form of Molina's PhD proposal in rocket design. This opens the doors of academia to them, allowing them to use the resources of Caltech and Gaussett. Now, they start doing uh, exactly what it sounds like. They, that they're using the resources there and start launching rockets. But they start having uh, some mishaps near the campus, so the group has moved out to the desert for their experiments. And they earn the nickname the Suicide Club along the way because obviously they're blowing stuff up and people are making fun of them that they're going to blow themselves up. Now, aside from Melina Parsons and Foreman, the Suicide Club also features Apollo Milton Olin Smith and a Chinese person, <laughs> yeah, uh, Sin Hsu Shin. Apollo, of course, is the Greek sun god, so another tie-in there. Uh, Sin Hsu Shin, I'm probably butchering that name, the 33rd gener generation descent of uh, Qian Lu, king of Wuye, was a protege of von Karman and received a graduate degree from MIT and assisted in the development of the Jado technology, which we'll get to in a minute. He was later deported back to China in exchange for 11 American airmen captured during the Korean War. He went on to be a key contributor to the Chinese rocketry programs of the later 20th century. So it looks to me like just an encoded history of, you know, I would have to look up who the king of Wei was, but I assume he probably had something to do with early Chinese rocketry or something like that. But this guy's the 33rd generate descent, um, generation of descent from this king. Why is it even important to point that out? You know, this guy is either a man on his own, right? You could say he's descended from a king, I suppose. But why are you pointing out that he's the 33rd generation away? And then, of course, we get up into the whole war as theater of war, where they're going to trade 11 American airmen and 11 so often in the Crowley-esque Luciferian mindset is signaling a spell that's been cast. And, you know, you could roll your eyes of whether you think spells are real. But nonetheless, if these 11 airmen were figments of everyone's imagination, there's your spell right there. And so much of war is a figment of your imagination. But anyhow, go ahead. Keep pushing, Jason. Well, in 1938, they finally get a huge break when the U.S. Army is looking for rocket engines to launch small aircraft, which would allow runways to be much shorter. Parsons supposedly comes up with the idea of using asphalt, being reminded of the ancient Greek fire incendiary weapon out of mythology, as a binding agent to make the needed fuel stable enough for storage And after watching a roofer applying hot asphalt to the top of a building. The U.S. military sees the potential value in what is dubbed a JATO canister, which is short for Jet Assisted Takeoff. They get a small amount of money to work on further development. 
It is said that this solid rocket fuel forms the basis of the Minuteman missile, the Titan rocket, and the space shuttle solid rocket boosters. So there's your direct <laughs> tie from the beginnings to today. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I could say a lot of things, but I suspect a lot of people out there aren't ready to hear it because it, it, it relates directly to war. So now we have the army getting involved with these nonsensical clowns, um, these sci-fi people, these magical elf-speaking people, um, these people who are creating the construct in our minds of what we now think space is. From my point of view, I will add, I don't know exactly how Jason and James would go at this, but now the Army's getting involved with these jokers. And, you know, they're mentioning things like the space shuttle. We have pointed out endlessly the fraud of the space shuttle on this show. Even on my YouTube channel outside of this show, we have taken apart enough space shuttle supposed ISS videos to show that there's shenanigans going on here. So when we begin to think about the Minuteman missile, the Titan rocket, uh, in the same breath as these guys who are making these JITO canisters and the space shuttle, we know we're mixing nonsensical things, so it gives us every reason to suspect the validity of things like Minuteman missiles and Titan rockets in terms of them functioning in the way they're being claimed. And while That is a bold statement and would require quite a bit more investigation to make substantive claims. Um, There's no getting away from mixing the milk with oil here, which is, in my view, what's going on. So, James, did you have anything to add to this? Not really, but aside from the fact that this is, again, just a jet-assisted takeoff, it really has nothing to do with space travel, which all of this eventually leads to. Again, it's just an accelerated uh, booster that allows a aircraft to take off from a a shorter runway than is typically used. I mean, that's ultimately maybe this is the epiphany of what this group got to. I don't know. But it's it's, uh, completely different than being blasted up into outer space and crashing objects into the moon, as we'll see later on. So, Yeah, you're right. You're right. And I would also point out that here's the rub. You know, we know some of these things are here. You know, we can see them. Um, We can go to a military base and see some of these things working. But nonetheless, um, it's being claimed that it's forming the basis for the Minuteman missile, the Titan rocket, and the space shuttle. We see these things take off, but, you know, the minute you begin to talk about the space shuttle— I don't think there's any thinking person out there who's falling for that from the nonsensical explosions where the same crew was apparently killed twice and most of them have been accounted for as still alive in this world, um, with the exception of one, many of them being called out on it and claiming they had a twin that died in the accident to try to cover the nonsense. So anyhow, back to you, Jason. At this point, we're going to start getting into the really weird occult stuff that uh, Parsons is involved with. In 1939, he began to attend agnostic mass at the Agape Temple in Los Angeles. This is a branch of Aleister Crowley's Thelemite Ordo Templi Orientis, commonly known as the OTO. And that still exists to, to, uh, until today. It does. The main tenet of the faith was the law of Thelema, which is Crowley's sex magic. Their main tenet is, do as thou wilt. And and I, let me point something out there, Jason. We've 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 called Crowley's law out a couple times on this show, and some people have had a problem with it because we didn't include the lines that followed. So typically, what we say on this show is do it that do as thou wilt, and let that be the whole of law, or something to that effect. It's whatever was stamped on the middle of Zeppelin Four. I believe it's do as thou wilt is the whole of the law. There you go. So that's stamped on the Zeppelin Four album in the middle of the original print. But for any of you that would like to know exactly what is said, go ahead and look up what we just said um, from the center of the Zeppelin Four album, and you can read exactly what's on both sides of that little 
Diddy. Anyhow, sorry, Jason, go ahead. Now, this particular branch of the OTO was run by a, a gentleman named Wilfred Talbot Smith. Jack and his first wife, Helen, officially joined in 1941. Shortly thereafter, he began corresponding with Aleister Crowley, and this led to a strong relationship over the following years, with Crowley making Parsons his American representative for the OT organization. So Crowley, whoever he was, apparently thought very highly of Jack Parsons. Parsons pursues his occult and scientific interests with equal passion from this point on. He's just as much into this stuff as he is into rockets. So, I mean, here we are, man. We're getting the trifecta. All we need is a sci-fi writer, and I think that's coming before long, right, Jason? Absolutely. Multiples, in fact. <laughs> now, now, for what it's uh, for what it's worth, the Ordo Templi Orientis had a temple on nearby Mount Palomar, which we've already been discussing, and uh, believed that Palomar was the sexual chakra of the Earth. Parsons was known to commute from Pasadena to Palomar throughout this time period. Palomar would eventually host the U.S. military contactee construct of Georgia Damsky, wherein photographs of UFOs of upside-down hubcaps would generate the archetype of the typical flying saucer image that perpetrated 20th century imaginations. So yeah. here again, we, we have what I think is pretty much accepted as fraud from Adamski um, mixed in with this nonsense. Go ahead, James, take it. Yeah, exactly. You had mentioned, you know, we're going to get to the sci-fi writer. Well, here's one that just popped up now. You have uh, the history of Adamski. Very briefly, he operated a burger grill on Mount Palomar. In '46. he began seeing UFOs in the night sky from this uh, burger grill. Later, two men in 1949 calling themselves Bloom and Maxfield from Naval Electronics Laboratory in San Diego assisted in helping Adamski take photos of all of these UFOs that were flying across uh, Southern California. Uh, he later claimed to have met Orthon, a denizen of Venus, and then proceeded to write a book about the encounter called The Flying Saucers Have Landed. And from what I gather, that is that was a huge book. I mean, it was a monumental bestseller. So you're, yep. you're printing some an idea of UFOs, all of this originating from this time period. Um, it's just a it's an interesting archetype of this individual named Adapsky, uh, Palomar. Uh, you go back to George Ellery Hale and this idea of UFOs that basically perpetuated throughout the uh, 20th century. Not only that, we're looking at... Um a very geographical oddity here because they're calling Palomar a chakra of some sort of the earth, which is sitting on the 33rd parallel, which puts George Adamski's burger grill on the 33rd parallel. The modern construct of UFOs basically comes out of Roswell, which is further east in a place. Um, I don't, I don't even know. I looked it up so many hundreds of miles to the east on the 33rd parallel parallel called Roswell. It'd be interesting to know if they claim that's some kind of a chakra, but what you can see is on the 33rd parallel in Roswell, they make up the whole construct, which is going to begin to insert the UFO idea into the public consciousness and whether or not there are other things alive in this place we are, I cannot tell you, but I can tell you this is a construct. This whole Roswell nonsense, um, it creeps further west to Palomar, and now we've got a guy filming hubcaps to show everyone the flying saucers, and he's directly relatable to these guys who are at the observatory here. But anyhow, this does bring us close to the top of the hour. Um, is this a maybe a good cut point, Jason? Uh, well, just to kind of get the... Uh last bits of the, the introduction of the OTO out. Um, this is where Jack Parsons also starts having his strange approach to physical intimacy and human relationships that he'll have for the rest of his life. While he Jack became friends with uh, Smith, the head of the OTO there, 
Smith would later on go on to have an intimate relationship with Helen Parsons. The two would eventually have a child together, and supposedly with Jack's blessings. And Jack ends up taking up with Helen's younger sister, Sarah, who is also known as Betty. But Sarah was possibly, in certain accounts, only 17 years of age, implying that Parsons had no issue with pedophilia. So, you know, the mindset of these people being... I, whatever you want to call it, depraved, uh, it's it's debauchery, all these things that you're going to see around this guy as, as we get into hour two. He, he definitely had dubious morals, to to put it bluntly. Well, it seems to relate directly to the idea of Crowley's sex magic. And, you know, I guess people can do what they want. I don't think pedophilia is included in that statement I just made. You do draw the line at certain places. But I guess if he wants to swap wives and, you know, take up with sisters if they're of legal age um, they can do what they want but it really isn't the norm and again these are the guys that are supposedly laying the foundations for our amazing trips to space um, but anyhow this does bring us to the top of the hour um, I'm going to let Jason outline quickly what's coming up in the second hour because there is a heck of a lot but the aim of this show is to really show you just the bizarre nature of how so many of these things we think are a big deal, like NASA and JPL, how they actually were founded and how you can relate them to so many nonsensical things that will not allow you to balance your ledger. But without any further ado, Jason, you want to cover what's coming up in uh, in the second hour? I think we're going to go way over the second hour, by the way. I think we'll probably end up doing another hour and a half anyhow. Yeah, Parsons gets heavily into all this all this occult stuff. He, he does de- do some development, supposedly, that does uh, impress a lot of people with the rocketry, but he, he just super depraved behavior. And then he starts having wild parties at, at his house with science fiction writers and, and all these other things get involved with it, uh, L. Ron Hubbard just being one of them. So we're going to see just how twisted this whole scenario was. And, and, you know, even if if everything we've been talking about isn't enough, you're about to get a new religion out of the people hovering around in this crowd from L. Ron Hubbard, who is also a science fiction writer. Um, right now, Hollywood is very busy trying to defame with their shows. It goes both ways. You see it over the years where it's OK to be part of L. Ron Hubbard's religion. And right now, I guess it's not OK to be part of that religion. But n- nonetheless, look at what we're talking about here. This is where NASA comes from, <laughs> You know, basically the modern NASA is in a way being founded with JPL if we look at the modern construct where JPL and NASA are one and the same. Anyhow, this does bring us to the top of the first hour, and I would be surprised if we didn't go at least another hour and a half um, with the stuff I post on my website for membership. Anyhow, this has been uh, Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast, episode 52, where we are covering mostly the founding of JPL and just the nonsensical amalgamation of information we can associate it with, with it so there it is hope to see you all over at crow triple seven radio.com cheers